0: The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: All right, all right, Disability Law Show. Good to have you here. It's Martin Willems in the uh, – he's in the hot seat because he's got all the information, going to be answering all the questions. And uh, the emails have been coming in over the last week, which is good. You want to contribute anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Help at disabilityrights.ca. 1-855-821-5900, and uh, you can check out this website as well. It's fairly new. It's full of information. There's a contact there as well. Pocket Disability Lawyer.ca. Pocket Disability Lawyer.ca as well. Want to dive right into our emails momentarily here, Martin? But you always uh, get us warmed up with something. What's uh, what's going on on your side, pal?
2: Hey John yes thanks for that um, what I wanted to speak about today just briefly is when people apply for individual policies and it may be a long-term disability individual policy or it may be a life insurance policy or travel insurance or critical illness because these are products that are available in the market sometimes people will get them through applying to a broker or some other process um, the reason why I wanted to speak about this is Every now and again we get a phone call from somebody who has been denied their application for benefits quite often it would be under life insurance which would make it really difficult because the person who applied for the coverage is no longer alive to provide context and evidence as to what information was given in the application phase. So this is just a general I suppose primer for anybody listening. If you were thinking about applying for one of these products how this works is when you apply you have to submit evidence regarding your health your previous health your health history and it may be done where you may have sit in front of a broker who you have retained to get you this coverage or it may be that you're getting it through a bank where you've applied for a mortgage and the bank is offering you mortgage coverage through a master policy that they may have with one of the insurance companies. So there may be a bank employee doing this with you, or it may be that you're applying for travel insurance and you're doing an application via the phone, um, or maybe online. Why we see cases tonight quite often is because the insurance company, when they get a claim based on the product that they've sold, that they've given you, like the insurance benefit, When they look at that, they may go back in time to see what information did you submit or did the deceased submit to support their application for coverage. So that's not the application for benefits. That's when they wanted to go purchase the coverage firsthand. So sometimes people may say, well, I told the broker about my history. But on top of that, you have to sign a document saying that everything that you've disclosed is accurate and reasonable. Same thing when you submit something to the bank employee when they go through the questions with you. So what I'm trying to communicate here is you have to be accurate when you provide them with your history because what happens is the insurance company once they receive the application and the disclosure with respect to your medical history, they then send those documents and the history to the underwriting department who then assesses whether you are a risk that they are prepared to underwrite. In other words, they're going to look at the medical information and see whether this is a policy that they will issue to you so that you do have coverage, be it for life insurance or individual coverage for disability or critical illness. And when you do this, if you don't remember your medical history. You know, for myself, I've done this as well. I have taken the form to my doctor or maybe even given my uh, clinical records to the insurance company so that I, if I feel that there is really so much happening that I don't remember everything. Because what the insurance companies often do is they will look at this. If you, for example, may have had high cholesterol at some point, but you, and it may have been during the th- previous three or five years from the date that you applied for coverage. If you did not disclose that, the insurance company may then ultimately say, if you make a claim for breast cancer later on, even though it has nothing to do with the fact that you had high cholesterol at some point, that they are going to void the coverage from the right. outset. And people get very upset about this and I understand why, because they say, well, this is something that happened. I don't even remember that I had this. Now, of course, there are other things that come into play here, because if you do get denied. After you've made a claim within the first two years of having that coverage, the only thing the insurance company has to do is see whether the disclosure or the non-disclosure, the misrepresentation was material to their decision to underwrite. If it was or if they would have given this coverage to you but at a higher premium then you've got a problem because there's probably no claim to pursue. But if your coverage has been in place for more than two years, then the insurance company has to prove that what you did there was a fraudulent misrepresentation, which means that you deliberately did not disclose the information or you were willfully blind to the fact that this was there, kind of knew about it, but you're just negligent in not saying to them on the forms when you completed it, that you had these health concerns. So in order to avoid this, And in order to avoid avoid these, you know, these traps that you can step in, make sure that when you complete those forms, number one, if the broker is doing it on your behalf because they may be doing it on a computer or they may be taking it on your behalf, that you actually read through those questions because those questions are important and make sure that you understand the question and also that when you respond to that question that you've given accurate information. For example, it may say, have you ever had a mental health disorder, a nervous disorder? Have you ever seen a doctor for it? Have you ever had symptoms of it? And you may not remember that you've seen a doctor for this recently. So maybe go have a discussion with your doctor about it. Did I have any of these issues? Maybe have the doctor review it with you and see whether the doctor can assist in reminding you well on this date you had this happen. Of course doctors don't necessarily have the time to do it, so you may want to get copies of your clinical records and complete it by looking at those records. So that if in the unfortunate event that you have to make a claim, because many people think that's all they're going to assess is should I be paid on this claim or not, that's not necessarily what they're going to do. They may go back in time to see when you were healthy and you made this application where you, I suppose the word would be accurate, that the information that you provide to them, was that information accurate? And if it wasn't, you may run the risk of them just completely canceling your coverage. So it is crucial, make sure that the broker understands when they complete this, that they have to be accurate and you review what the broker has completed. When you do it with the bank, make sure that you have a witness. I would say as well, as to what it is that you disclosed to the bank and the information that was completed because you have to sign ultimately. And when you do these applications over the phone, quite often they are reported. Make sure that you know what your medical history is before you respond to those questions. Because I've seen so many people have travel insurance tonight, where the, insurer, the, the person may go to the States, have a heart attack, then come back, they've been hospitalized there, they now have a medical bill of hundred or $150,000. Yeah, totally and they they didn't tell the insurance company when they were applying for this coverage that they had a history of high cholesterol high blood pressure because these are things that the insurance companies consider prior to approving the coverage and that is a very very uncomfortable place to be when you come back and you owe all that money and you don't have coverage for it so that's the message for today make sure when you apply for coverage that you are detailed with respect to your medical history so that you don't fall into this trap in a later time should the unfortunate event arise that you have to submit a claim.
1: It almost seems scary when you hear that, you know, no uh, no, uh, medical information needed or no medical examination. That that always makes me, based on what you just said, that always makes me a little gun shy to to go forth with that without being full, have full disclosure uh, with the insurance company to, on your end, cover your policy, right? I, I don't trust it.
2: It is really, uh, you know, it's such an important thing and so many people don't understand that. So I've never really come across this, although you see it, where they say, well, we don't really need medical information. That's not really true. um, Some policies, they may say, well, we're just going to ask you three questions. And it may be with respect to are are you in treatment now for something serious or are you being diagnosed with cancer or are you going to be further assessed? Because that's another thing that happens. People may apply for coverage this is really important to understand you may apply for coverage you submit the evidence through the broker to the insurance company that takes some time now the insurance company is considering whether they're going to issue the coverage say a month goes by in that month you then go to the doctor because something new has arisen so maybe you felt that there's a lump somewhere in your body your doctor says okay we're gonna have to investigate this further Mm-hmm. Then the insurance company gives the, um, the policy to the broker and they issue the, the coverage during the time that you apply it. And when you get the policy, obviously something new has now happened. They may have you sign off that since the time that you applied to the date that the, cover- the policy is given to you, delivered to you, that there has not been a change in your health. But again, be very careful. It doesn't end. In other words, your duty to disclose information with respect to your health does not end just on the day that you applied. It carries on through to the date that the uh, coverage, the policy is delivered to you. At least that's how, how many of them do read, that they don't want to take a risk. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You've given the application now then they're still considering it. So it's not yet approved from the date that That's you applied. Right. It's only approved once they deliver it to you. And if your health changed in between those two dates, you still have a duty to advise them of it. And I've seen those cases as well. They're yeah, difficult makes, to man navigate.
1: It makes total sense. It makes total sense. But... uh well, uh, let's get into a short break here, Martin, before we uh, dive into the uh, collection of emails that we've been building up over the last week. Again, you can send one along anytime. We'd love to have it. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And to reach out to Martin and his team by phone. That's open for you as well. one Fifty nine hundred. We continue just getting warmed up here on the Disability Law Show. Stand by.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: All right, we are back. Disability Law Show. So good you've tuned in this week. Martin Willems is your reach out as far as the lawyer is concerned and his team. Always ready to have that chat with you. If you're uh, scared or if you're on uh, tenter hooks about dealing with that insurance company, maybe they told you they're going to cut you off. Maybe you didn't. You got denied outright. Or maybe they asked you appeal for the millionth time. You want to reach out to Martin and his team, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, email number one for the day is coming up right now. Martin says, guys, I uh, have an individual policy which has two exclusionary riders. The one excludes disability related to my cervical spine. The other excludes disability related to a psychiatric illness. I was diagnosed with depression in my teens and have been stable on medications ever since, with a worsening every now and again. Uh, I've not taken any time off work due to my depression in the past 20 years. In 2022, I started to experience various health concerns and have seen by uh, different specialists and have undergone many tests. The stress of all this has led to a worsening of my depression, but only because of my concerns about my health. I was finally diagnosed with MS, but was denied disability as the insurer relying on the psychiatric illness exclusion. This is very upsetting. I believe the MS by itself is disabling. What do you guys say?
2: Okay. This is a good question, so it goes back to what I said before, I suppose, in, to some degree, because this is an, a person who applied for individual coverage. Right? Yes. So they did this through a broker, they had to complete a medical questionnaire, and clearly they disclosed in the medical questionnaire some history with respect to having a depression in the past, and probably something in relation to their neck. That the insurance company says, okay, we're going to issue this coverage to you, but we are not prepared to accept the risk of a future claim that may be related to your cervical spine, meaning your neck, or... A psychiatric illness, knowing that this person has depression. So, we will cover other illnesses, but not these two. So, these are called exclusionary riders. So, this person accepted that and then continued to pay premiums on that individual policy. But look what has happened now. They've been stable on medications for a long period of time, not having taken time off work. New health issues arose. Various specialists have been seen, many tests have been done and now we know that the disabling condition is MS, multiple sclerosis. It's almost a foregone conclusion that with that you are going to have significant stress and anxiety. And if you have a pre-existing condition of depression, that that may be exacerbated. In other words, you've had depression, it waxes and wanes, sometimes it's worse, sometimes it's okay, you manage on medications, you've never taken time off work, but with this very new medical condition, Your stress levels maybe are higher and that has impacted your depression to the extent that that is also now an active issue. Should you be paid benefits? I will say the same that I say to every other person. I would want to look at the wording of the policy. I will want to look at the medical evidence that you have. I'm sure the doctor supports that because of this diagnosis of multiple sclerosis which we know can be a very disabling condition other Mm -hmm. people may be working with that for many years but if the MS by itself is disabling I would argue that that in itself should qualify you so another way of looking at this is if we take the depression out of the way just remove the depression is the mere fact that you have been diagnosed with MS. Is that multiple sclerosis so advanced or is it so, you know, I suppose, acutely active at the moment that the restrictions and limitations just with respect to the MS diagnosis would prevent you from performing the duties of your own occupation? If that is the case, then I would strongly argue that the fact that there is an active depression now as well in relation to the MS should not disqualify you from benefits. So we've seen this before, not just with these fact patterns, but in other cases where there are certain exclusions, a new condition comes into play, it aggravates the previous conditions, for example, the depression, and the insurance company then denies the claim because it's an easy out. Well, just because they've denied it on their basis does not mean that they are right. And you're not the first person who has had this, as I've said before, these types of fact patterns. Reach out to us and we can have a discussion with you. We will review the policy, your medical information, the denial letter, and discuss with you what your options are. Because as we say during every show, getting information gives you power, right? then you can make a decision, with a, make an informed decision as to how to proceed. And that quite often leads to pursuing a legal claim where we act for clients, you no longer deal with the insurance company, all communications come through us and we fight for you to get what we think is right and to try and get you the best um, settlement that is available under the circumstances of this policy. We give these consultations on a free basis and basically throughout the country other than in Quebec and the territory. So please reach out to our firm.
1: That whole thing about you taking over the communication, that alone is a massive uh, uh, relief that people don't realize after they start working with you, Martin, that uh, that's a huge benefit to them, just not getting hounded day in, day out, or possibly weekly by the insurance company, right?
2: You know, you couldn't have made a truer statement there. I, I have spoken and I do this on a weekly basis and so do the other lawyers in my firm. We speak to people who are so stressed out. Even ones who are currently on claim with insurance companies sure. when they say, I, I, I'm i so stressed when the phone rings and I've got call display and I see the insurance company's name or if I receive a letter in the mail with the insurance company's name on it, I have a panic attack. Now obviously it's not all of them, but many of them do have this experience. So. I think when we have this discussion with people phoning our firm to ask, what are my options? The fact that pursuing a legal claim may allow you not to speak to the insurance company, not to have that interaction and would allow you to focus on your treatment is huge for people. Obviously, we, we guide you with respect to what the options are, and you make sure. that decision. But you need to understand what is available to you and what the pros and cons of each situation is. So, but what you've said is so true. Uh, dealing with an insurance company who is making decisions on your financial well-being while struggling with the effects of a medical illness and not being able to work and having to deal with all, all of that entails is extremely stressful. This next
1: email is actually a good one, and I like covering this uh, this topic on the show, Martin. By the way, you want to send one along anytime? Help at disabilityrights.ca it says, Martin, what do I do when I get approved for CPP disability? I'm on LTD. I applied for uh, reconsideration uh, to CPP disability. I just got the approval letter from Service Canada today. Nice. Uh, what are the next steps for me? That's good news. Wing. It is very
2: good news because now you're going to get that benefit, and it's not the same necessarily – it's not mm-hmm. adjudicated the same as in long-term disability right. claim with the private insurer. Once CPP is approved, the expectation would be that you're going to continue to receive that without ongoing assessments on a very regular basis. question is, what do I do once my CPP disability claim is approved? You may know, for, to this specific person who's asking this question, to anybody else who listens, once your LTD claim is approved, you probably will receive a letter from the insurance company setting out various things. It will say, you're approved. This is how we've calculated your benefit. This is w- w- why it's taxable or non-taxable. And this is what's going to happen. They may say, you've got the duty to carry on seeing your doctor on a regular basis and follow through with treatment advice. But also, you have a duty to advise us should you receive benefits income benefits from other sources for example CPP disability so what does that mean in terms of being approved now the policy if this is a group policy if the group policy provides that CPP disability is an offset and most of them if not all provide that then you have to advise the insurance company that your claim has been approved because if they find out about this later on and you didn't tell them they're going to probably reduce your benefit to make up for what has been paid, because that back payment, once you've applied for CPP disability, and if your disability is in effect now for maybe two years or more, the application is such that once they receive the application, I'm speaking about Service Canada, if it is approved, it's retroactive 11 months in effect from the day that you applied so if it is retroactive over the same period that you've received LTD benefits that back payment very very possibly will have to be paid back to the insurance company and if you don't tell them it's going to come to you and you're going to keep that money and they're going to find out about it and they're going to want to recover that from you and if you've spent it it may affect your ongoing entitlement for a period of time so that this is a long way of saying once you get it approved Advised insurance company, and they will adjudicate your claim and assess your ongoing entitlement. Yes, but it's also helpful to say that even the government has now accepted that you are totally disabled, not just from performing the duties of your own occupation, but also the duties of any gainful occupation, and that your disability is severe and prolonged.
1: It's interesting, too, because that CPP is a good thing. I think a lot of people think off the hot martin, like, okay, so I'm getting... $2,000 a month from the disability insurer. Now I have just approved for CPP. They gave me 1000 Oh, good. I get $3,000 a month. That's not the case. It's a, it's a zero-sum game because you're going to get credit to the insurance company for that 1000 right? So you still come out with 2000 right?
2: You still come out with 2000 Some people say, well, why should I apply to the government? It is the insurance company's duty to pay me. I get that argument. Hmm. But what happens if you didn't apply and you've been on claim now for three years and the insurance company suddenly stops your payments? At least if you did apply for CPP, then you still have that payment ongoing. Whereas if you never applied, the insurance company denies your claim, you now find yourself in a position where you're not getting any benefits. I'm not saying that people should immediately go apply for CPP disability. What I am saying is most group policies do provide that you have to apply at some point. And if you don't apply, the insurance company may even estimate what that benefit amount is and deduct it from your benefit. It all depends on the language within the policy. but. In my mind, the CPP disability entitlement is somewhat similar to the any occupation phase in your policy, which generally happens two years after you've received benefits from the insurer for the own occupation period. So when it gets to that two-year timeline, after you've received those two years of own OCC payments. That's when the insurance company may start to push you, if they're accepting that you remain disabled from working in any occupation, to apply for CPP disability benefits. And if you say, I'm not gonna do that, you may run into trouble.
1: Let's uh, roll down to our next email. Martin says, guys, I'm on LTD and my employer has posted my job for hire on a permanent full-time basis. Does that mean they will let me go? Will I lose my benefits? Will I have to pay back my LTD payments? Will I get severance? How will this affect me in total?
2: Okay, so there are some LTD questions here and then there are some employment questions. The good thing is, at our firm we have employment lawyers as well. So you don't get that in every firm, we're fortunate because these two often go hand in hand, long term disability and employment. So reach out to our firm to ask the questions with respect to the employment issues because we have a team of lawyers who could assist you with that on the issue of how will this affect your ongoing entitlement to LTD. So what happened here is this person is receiving long-term disability and in the meantime, the employer has posted their position on a permanent full-time basis, which leads to the question, does that mean that once I am ready to return to work, will I have a job to go to? So that's a good question. Again, pose that to an employment lawyer. But one would think that the employer should not be terminating somebody when they are on disability. Um, But again, I'll leave that to the employment people. Will you have to pay back LTD payments? No. No, you won't. If you are receiving long-term disability benefits from the insurance company, what happens at the end of the employment should not affect your entitlement. Your entitlement for long-term disability is you proving that you are disabled within the meaning of that policy. That does not mean anything with respect to paying back LTD payments to the insurer or the employer. Will you be getting a severance? I suppose that's possible depending on the circumstances. Again, that's an employment issue. But the bigger question is, if you receive severance, how will that affect your entitlement to benefits? And again, we look at what the policy says. The policy is a contract. I am asked this question with ongoing clients and prospective clients on a regular basis. I always want to see what the wording of the policy is. You may have something called direct offsets and something which may be called indirect offsets. For some policies and some policies, group policies, I have seen that any payments received from the employer, including severance payments, will be deemed as an indirect offset. So it may impact your ongoing entitlement, not entitlement, but your payment. It may be deducted to some degree. Obviously it's going to be time limited to, to how many months you've received severance, but I would say, only if the policy provides the severance as the North If it doesn't, then the argument, of course, is it shouldn't be deducted because the policy, that contract, if it's not in there, you cannot read it in just because you don't like that the person got more money from a different source.
1: And with that, we got to slide into a quick break. Get back to more of your emails. If it doesn't appear on this show a little later on, it might on a future show. So- keep sending them, right? Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. And you can also go to uh, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. If you haven't checked that out yet, do so. And we'll come back with lots more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. It's coming up.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: All right, back. Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is always the guy on the show and the one to reach out to if you have concerns of your own, possibly something you're dealing with personally with an insurance company being cut off, uh, denied, asked to appeal. All these things happen on a regular basis. Or family member or colleague, feel free to uh, do so. The phone number anytime, one 855 821 5,900 email help at disabilityrights.ca, and for uh, concise, easy-to-digest notations about LTD, what we talk about on the show, you can go to ltdfaq.ca, check that out. Okay, next email, Martin says, uh, guys, I'm on LTD and also collecting CPP uh, benefits. If I withdraw money from my RSPs, is that considered income? Do I have to disclose a withdrawal to my insurer, and could they reduce my benefit? That's a great question.
2: It is a great question. Similar, Not similar, but I, I touched on this with the previous question. Let's start with basics. We're going to look at what the policy says. The policy is a contract. The contract has provisions. In those provisions, there would be a list of things that the insurance company can deduct from your long-term disability benefit. If you are withdrawing money from your RRSPs, I do not consider that to be employment income in the context that once you've been disabled, you've gone to work somewhere else and you're receiving employment income or income to something that you contributed to before like CPP disability or even WorkBC benefits or WorkSafe in other provinces. Is RRSP, withdrawing from RRSP, considered income for the purposes of the insurance company being able to deduct it I don't believe so. I've never seen that happen. But I would, as I say with every question, want to look at what the wording of that policy is. You know, sometimes people withdraw money from their RRSPs because the insurance company has denied their claim for long term disability benefits. And then you can make the argument that that has put you in a more vulnerable position because you're going to have to pay that money back. So then. The discussion of potentially speaking about damages comes into play. So the fact that you are forced to re- withdraw money from your RRSP is because you're not getting sufficient income. I don't believe should be held against you because that's not why you paid into this policy, right? You paid into this policy to get you benefits paid. Now, of course, we're, it's really wage replacement. That's what these policies provide for, exactly. and. If it is an LTD benefit that you're receiving, you're receiving it at a certain percentage of your pre-disability income. So it never really replaces your entire income. And if they're receiving CPP, that is already being deducted from what they get for LTD. So for long-term disability, you may find that your benefit is 60 to 70% of your pre-disability income, which means that you're losing out on about 30 to 40%. So it's not surprising that this person is considering withdrawing money from their RRSP, especially considering that the cost of living is so extreme these days. So again, long way of saying I don't believe that that should be considered income for the purposes of deducting it from the RTD benefit with the caveat that I would want to look at the wording of the policy.
1: Exactly. Uh, send your stuff along anyway, by the, uh, by the way, that for you is listening as well, help at disabilityrights.ca, that's the email address. Okay, guys, I was on STD claim for anxiety slash depression for two weeks uh, to the end of August of 2022. I returned to work but missed multiple days and then went off on medical leave again, November 10th, and a new claim was started. Should the November 10th leave be treated as a recurrent disability? And does it matter? The recurrence limit is within two months. The insurance company is denying my new claim because they say there's no evidence that I am totally disabled.
2: Okay, so... This one, it is very fact specific. I will start off by saying this, when you have a claim and it's based on a policy for short-term disability benefits as well, there's something called recurrence. So most policies have a recurrence clause. And the recurrence clause under the short-term disability plan versus the long-term disability plan is usually different. So for short-term it may be that you go off work because of a condition, You come back to work, and if you go back to work with uh, and you go off again within a certain period of time due to the same condition, then it may be that the insurer will say to you, No, this is a new claim because it depends on how long you've been back to work. I say, see that it says here the recurrence limit is within two months. If that is the case, the person goes off work in August, then comes back in on november the 10th so let's say also that's september october november so that's more than two two months months. so then if it is two months then it should be considered a new claim because you didn't go off work within the recurrence provision for ltd the recurrence provision usually is six months usually again it depends on the wording of your own policy so what that means is if you've been off for a certain condition you're receiving LTD benefits then you go back to work and within the first six months you go off work due to the same illness and that's the cause of the disability then it's a recurrence of the previous one which means then that there's no new elimination period but it also means that the own occupation period continues so is there a benefit to having a deemed a new claim on the one that there could be even though there's a there's a uh, elimination period meaning that waiting period of three to four months but then a new own occupation period starts for the next two years so again it it is definitely cons- um based on what the wording of the policy is and this person also says the insurance companies deny my new claim because they say there's no evidence that I'm totally disabled if that is the case Reach out to us so we can review this claim with you because, again, there are options and one of them potentially may be pursuing a legal claim.
1: It's interesting, though, I mean, as we go into break here, just because, I mean, it starts a new ONOC, but it doesn't mean that the after two years the any occupation will apply. They may still be totally disabled, right? They may not be able to go to that any occupation phase.
2: Exactly. It really depends yeah. on their circumstances. So exactly. it, it's, there are pros and cons to both, but it all comes down to what does this policy say? What is the p- recurrence provision under the short term? And potentially, what does it mean under the long term? But here we're dealing with a short term issue from that. So I would want to see what the short term disability policy provision is for the recurrence clause.
1: And we'll get to a couple of our uh, emails after a short break. And to, to reach out anytime to one 855 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. This is a disability law show and we're coming right back. Hang
0: on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: And we're back with the Disability Law Show. Try to get to another email or two before we uh, wrap up for this particular hour. You can keep sending them though, even though the show's uh, off air. Of course, obviously, right? Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number. 1-855-821-5900 one 821 5900 Here we go. Uh, says Martin, uh, I'm still a, a year out from my change of definition. My provider wants to start discussing my ability to return to work or if I can go back to doing what I was doing, depending on my education and background, doing something else. What? Are they going to job hunt for me? What does that mean? For context, I've uh, had one knee replacement surgery done, but the surgeon wants me to fully heal before she does the second Uh, I've had some complications too. Is this standard practice so far out and what should I uh, be on the lookout for? They've sent me forms to fill out. What does that mean?
2: Okay. Well, so what's happened here is there's a two-year own occupation period. Mm -hmm. The person has been receiving benefits for one year. So that's what they mean by saying they're one year away from the change of definition. What does that mean? Change of definitions. the insurance company is going to assess whether you meet the new definition of total disability, meaning that are you unable to perform the essential duties of another occupation based on your education, training and experience. So, I mean this person says they've sent them forms to fill out and they're asking questions based on their education and background. The reason why they're doing this is they're starting to assess whether in the future and I, I know, I, I agree, it's pr- It's quite early to do this. But it may also be signaling that if this person is having issues with their knee and further surgery may be required, right, then it may be that the insurance company is accepting, look, we know that there's been knee surgery. We know that there's going to be further problems down the line. It's probably going to take at least a year for this person to work through all those things. So we're going to, for the moment, internally tell ourselves that They're not going to go back to their own occupation. So what we want to do now is start assessing whether this person is or has transferable skills to potentially go work in another occupation. And once we have that information, based on the education training experience, we may say, well, we're going to fund some computer training or something to try and make sure that when it, it gets to the change of definition, that they're going to be in a position to have evidence to deny the claim based on that the person may be able to work in another occupation based on their transferable skills. So then the person is asking, are they going to go job hunting for you? No, they're not. What they are going to do and what they are doing is they're assessing whether based on your transferable skills, your education, your training experience, whether potentially in the future there's going to be a job available for you. So they don't go looking out for you, a job for you, they don't go job searching. They're going to have what is called a transferable skills analysis, where they get a vocational person to do this report for them, looking at what your your transferable skill sets are and whether there is a job available in the labor market based on those skills that you could potentially do. Not whether you're going to do it, not whether that job is available for you, whether you actually be able to get that job. It simply is, is a job available in the job market? Is there such a job? And then make a decision as to whether you continue to be disabled. That's what's happening here. And it's a good question to ask at this juncture because you need to be prepared for what's coming. Um, continue to see your doctor on a regular basis. Speak to your doctor about your ongoing restrictions and limitations. And think about how your transferable skills may impact your ability to work in another occupation as well. So if this is all a physical component and you've had a knee surgery, I'm not sure if there are other issues at play, but if it were to be that you did a fairly physical job, which you cannot do with mm-hmm. knee concerns, I suppose, they may be looking at, okay, okay, Are you able to work in a less physical job, like a desk job? Remember that uh, any occupation phase? The consideration is, are you able to perform the duties of another occupation based on your transferable skills for any employer in any setting? So that means then that if there is a job out there that you could do even from the comfort of your own home or for a different employer, you're no longer disabled. I, ask, I get asked this question quite often because people may say, well, I cannot go back to that job. I just simply cannot do it. There's nothing else that the employer can offer me. That's not the consideration. It's not what can your employer offer to you. It is, is there a job available anywhere else, even for a different employer? And again, when we speak about the any occupation phase, it's not limited to something that would pay you the same as your pre-disability income. What they're looking at is is there a job out there that could pay you the same as your LTD benefit or if the policy has a specific percentage in there I've seen ones where they would say if you could perform a do, a job which would pay you 50% of your pre-disability income that's at the lower end and others would say 75% of your pre-disability income at the higher end that's what they're going to be looking at so you need to know these things when you're speaking to the insurance company because the more you speak about i cannot do my own job yes maybe i could do something else but in my mind that's not what we're looking at the more information you are providing to the insurance company potentially that would support their position so focus on what they're looking at if you've got questions speak to um, one of the lawyers at our firm so we can help you understand how to navigate this next year because it's going to be crucial what information is provided, and now that information is assessed.
1: Here's a short and simple question, Martin says. Can an insurance company ask for my, ask for access to my medical records for long-term disability?
2: You know, um, as with everything, nothing is ever white or black. There's gray. But if you're making a claim based on for disability, obviously it's based on some medical condition, right? right. A diagnosis, whether it be a physical issue, a mental health issue. And if it is during that period of time that you are making the claim, so say I go off work in April of 2023 and my mental health has been deteriorating during that period of time and beyond and they now want to see, the insurance company wants to see my medical records, yes, very likely you're going to have to disclose that information to the insurance company because it's relevant to the adjudication of the process. Quite often when they deny your claim, They may say to you, we don't have sufficient medical evidence to support your claim. We understand that you have symptoms, but we don't have the records. And part of the appeal process, which they may offer to people, would be, we want all these records. We want narrative reports. We want consult reports. We want you to give all of this to us. So at that point, I suppose you may want to have a discussion with the lawyer again to see what should you really be providing and what is relevant. I get asked this question all the time. What should I give? And... My, my response is, your doctor has to provide a letter detailing what your restrictions and limitations are. It's not enough to speak about the diagnosis. It's not enough to say, my patient has depression, therefore they cannot work. Your claim is going to be denied. Why can they not work? Lots of people with depression work so what is it about your depression that would prevent you from performing your job duties if you work as a police officer and you've been diagnosed with ptsd the doctor is going to detail how those those symptoms those restrictions and limitations impact your duties as a police officer so it needs to be put into context and it goes back to this question should we provide medical records to the insurance company it depends on the range of the request but if it is during the course of your claim I would find it difficult to say that no you shouldn't because it's very relevant to what you're claiming for a disability based on a medical condition
1: yeah, different than the employer asking for your medical records, which they have no right to. Disability insurance sure can in many ways, as you just uh, illustrated there. Martin is a uh, different story. With that, we are just about out of time, so we're going to take off for now. But uh, always the opportunity for you to... Uh, you know, add to the show and uh, get some questions out there that a lot of people want to know, so we thank you for it. And uh, how do you do that moving forward? The email address is a good start, right? Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number works, one 821 And for anything else and to learn more, always pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. And we will catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertising. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.